And did you know that this podcast is an independent production? That's right. The Eric Norcross podcast is an indie podcast. And because of that, we depend on listeners like you to help support the show. The best way to become a supporter is to become a patron. Patreon is a membership platform that allows creators to develop a more sustainable source of financial support for their projects. My Patreon supports this podcast. If you find this podcast worthwhile, please consider becoming a patron by heading over to the Patreon link in the description. That's patreon.com slash Eric Norcross. Again, patreon.com slash Eric Norcross, and the link will be in the description. Thank you, and on with the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Before I begin, I just wanted to talk to you about the subject matters of this episode. This episode isn't about finding answers, but about having conversations that can establish new pathways to thinking about subjects that don't have easy answers. My guest is the author of three books, Hunt for the Skinwalker, Skinwalkers at the Pentagon, and Brain Trust. All three of these books tackle difficult subject matters. My goal going into this is to have a transparent, open-minded discourse, not disrupted by dogmatic narratives or corrupted by mainstream expectations, and to do so without worrying about stigma on the subjects herein. I desire to embrace a truth of reality that doesn't conform to our natural desires for a well-defined binary reality, and to accept the truth that actual reality is gray. It is blurred and existing in a quantum field of information that we don't yet fully understand. On the podcast and in my life, I do not doubt the experiences of others, and I urge you to adopt a similar philosophy. It is in this that we will be able to truly listen and maybe eventually find the answers we so desperately desire. When I talk about the paranormal in this episode, it's the full spectrum ghosts, cryptids, UFOs, precognition, whatever isn't normal to our everyday lives. Some of the descriptions of paranormal anomalies will overlap with stories that exist in some religious beliefs, but it's important to view these concepts as part of the natural world and not concepts to fear out of religious taboo. If we're going to get an accurate idea of what it is we're actually looking at, experiencing, and responding to, then we must grow up and out of our fear-based preconceptions of what is or isn't off-limits to scientific study. Due to the complexity of the subject matters herein, I decided to separate the conversation into two episodes. The first part goes live January 3rd, and the second part goes live January 10th. With that said, please share this conversation with your friends who might be interested in the subject. Additionally, I'll be clipping the episode and including these clips on my YouTube channel, so if there are specific parts of the conversation you prefer to share, please consider sharing the clips. And please, don't forget to subscribe and participate in the discourse by leaving a comment on the YouTube version of this episode or any of the clips. Thanks, and on with the conversation.
I reached out to you because I had never made the hypothetical connection between mutilations and our food supply. And so I was thinking maybe we could have a conversation where we kind of start with your book from 2004, Brain Trust. Right. And then progress to mutilations and then go into the... Uh, the, the, the Parker's at the Pentagon? Yeah, yeah. Skinwalkers. Um, and Well, I, you know, the, the name is unfortunate. Well, it's not really unfortunate because, um, you know, the Skinwalker legend was totally non-existent until the, the publication of that first book, Hunt for the Skinwalker, and it sort of put the whole thing on the map. And the, the idea that Department of Defense officials were actually getting face to face with a lot of weird stuff. That's what where the title came from. But I think outside the small UFO community, it's almost meaningless to a lot of people. But actually, a lot of people have been affected at the Department of Defense. That's interesting. And I and, and yeah, I definitely want to go there. <laughs> um, and I'm thinking too, like some of my questions you might not have direct experience with but certainly you probably have thoughts on you probably heard some of the same stuff and so i figured you know you just let me know or if you want to skip them that's fine too uh but yeah i just kind of take a loosey-goosey conversational approach and i'm being informed that i have to talk to you now um i'm gonna shut my phone off Uh, yeah this is a this is my annotations for Hunt. Wow. <laughs> so that's Other Hunt in... for the Skinwalker. That's not even the... Yeah, that's the, not even the new one the yet. recent one. Yeah. Wow. I do all of them. And I did... Uh, <laughs> Brain Trust was only available through Kindle, so I can't show that to you. Um, I think we should do a one-on-one, if that's okay with you, uh, on kind of how you got your research into Alzheimer's going. Um and, and just making some of those basic connections uh, between cows, Alzheimer's, uh, people aren't going to know what pre- uh, prions are or prions. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but uh, I, I think it's, it's protein, right? That yeah, behaves they're, very they're weirdly. Essentially infectious proteins, which is, is a real kind of strange um, anomaly because all infectious organisms usually are associated with either viruses or bacteria or some kind of combination of, uh, of, of both. But um, the, the, pro- the, the fact that proteins can display infectious behavior really came out of Stanley Prusner's research, who, who got a Nobel Prize. Um, and and um, the, the previous sort of assumptions about about uh, this infectious entity that was uh, associated with transmission of these weird neurodegenerative diseases that became known as mad cow disease in, in, in cows and chronic wasting disease in deer. Well, there was a sort of a, an assumption that there was some kind of virus involved. I mean, that was the original assumption until um, sort of Stanley Prusner really started putting the idea of infectious proteins on the map and i mean everybody carries prions and when prions are in a a particular conformation you know uh shape um 
then they're, you know, they do a lot of good in the cell, but it's, it's when they flip to this alternative conformation um, is, is when they start really wreaking havoc on the cell. And then as time goes on, on the larger tissue, which is the brain. And, you know, the standard way of looking at the brain after um, in, infectious prions is, is almost like um, Swiss cheese. I mean, there's big holes punched in the brain over a few years of this um, alternative confirmation working its way through. Just so that um, we're getting the, the vocabulary down, can you describe the difference between a downer and a walker? In terms of cows? Yeah. Yeah, it, it's a, a downer cow is basically a cow who has lost the use of his or her um, nervous system um, and muscles. In other words, they can't get up and walk. A walker is, is um, a cow that is displaying preliminary symptoms, but, you know, are, is not actually... Um, sort of at the stage where it's becoming terminal. And, you know, the downer cows are, are, are usually well on the way to death. And, you know, walkers are, are, they may be staggering, they may be shaking, they may have sort of um, uncontrollable uh, twitches and all of that, but they're still able to walk. But so it's just a kind of a, a progression of, of, of symptoms. In, in some of the old interviews I, I, I saw of you, um, you had talked a little bit about how the, the research didn't include walkers or the testing didn't include walkers. Do you know if the USDA has changed their approach in testing? Well, you know, um, Brain Trust was written back in 2003 when the whole mad cow um, was was sort of a real issue because the first case had been discovered in Washington State and um, multiple cases had been discovered in Canada. And we were just at the sort of a, um, the latter end of a wave of, of um, cases of uh, mad cow disease in the United Kingdom and Europe. And people had eaten um, infected, tainted meat um, in the United Kingdom and Europe. And a lot of young people had died. So... Um, you know, Brain Trust was written in 2003, so the USDA um, really slammed on the brakes in terms of testing, um, uh, with the idea being that, you know, they were doing, quote-unquote, statistical sampling. But actually what they were doing was a lot less testing than they should have been. And in fact, there was a famous case, it might be in the, in the Brain Trust book, where, where a private company decided to go ahead and uh and and do testing oh, sorry my my cell phone just went off there um so so they um they decided to do testing and the uh the usda shut them down because they were testing outside of what the usda considered acceptable and the idea was that they were they were opening their doors towards private ranchers who wanted to know whether or not this um infectious entity was 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 in their cattle so a lot of a lot of people wanted testing to to accelerate but but the usda slammed on the brakes so in the uh, in the interim period there has not been an increase in testing there's actually been a decrease in testing over time 
So if there was uh, sort of low levels of um, of this, uh, you know, mad cow disease, BSE, um, being transmitted in the United States cattle herds, then the chances are it would not be detected these days. Oh, interesting. Um, I was hoping for better news. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's kind of gone off the radar for a lot of people. And, you know, since Brain Trust was written, the, um, you know, the, the, the science has, has progressed tremendously. And, um, you know, after the National Institute for Discovery Science program ended in 2003, 2004, I actually um, uh, took a job in San Francisco, California. I was working as a laboratory director at a uh, biotechnology company in San Francisco. And just by sort of coincidence, actually, um, one of the research arms that was being conducted at, at this um, company was looking exactly at the kinds of, um, of alternative prion uh, confirmations that were possible. And, you know, that the, the sort of the, the um, I guess the holy grail of this research or part of the holy grail of this research was to develop really good monoclonal antibodies that were directed against the alternative confirmations um, because that was that would have been a very good way of being able to distinguish preferentially between the different confirmations of the prions and and by analogy the the pathology you could actually investigate the pathology so i was part of the um, this biotechnology company in san francisco um, that was was doing this kind of, of prion research. And one of the things that has come out um, in the interim is that um, a lot of these so-called neurodegenerative diseases, including Alzheimer's disease, and um, a lot of the dementias also have these prion-like characteristics. They're not prion proteins, but some of the proteins that are involved in the in Alzheimer's disease display prion-like characteristics. In other words, they can change conformations. And once those conformations are, are changed, they can induce other proteins to change conformations. So there is that sort of large scale umbrella effect where all of the dementias and, all, um, and the neurodegenerative diseases share this characteristic uh, in common. When I wrote, uh, wrote Brain Trust back in 2003, None of that was known. Um, all of the research that was being done or has been done on that has really been done in the last 10, 12 years. So it's, it's got to the stage now where there is a, a lot of overlap in the thinking um, with the large Alzheimer's epidemic that, we, uh, you know, that we're, we're in the middle of. Um, and the fact that the, uh, the proteins in Alzheimer's um, display prion-like characteristics in terms of quote-unquote infectious behavior. So th that's a dimension that was not there, you know, 12 years ago. Yeah. Well, I know I, I can't even hear a conversation about Alzheimer's now without somebody mentioning beef. So I, yeah. I would like to think that you get the credit for that. Well, I know that there, there was, there's a lot of people that are involved in uh, in the research and, 
And it's, it is surprising. A lot of people have sort of uh, come up to me in the interim and talked about brain trust. Um, so quite a few people seem to have read the book, um, which kind of surprised me because um, the book is bad news. I mean, there's not there's not a lot of joy and happiness in that book. So I, I was um, not expecting, you know, a large number of people um, to be sort of reading it. But for example, South Korea, there was a, a lot of interest in South Korea because they had um, an uptick in uh, in BSE, um, you know, maybe 10 years ago. So a lot of people in South Korea bought the book. And I believe actually Brain Trust was, was translated into um, Korean. Well, I think I think a lot of people, despite what the some powers that be think, they want the truth, even if it's painful. People want to know how to be healthy. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that that, that especially um, these days, I think, is becoming more and more the case. Um, I think a lot of a lot of young people uh, do tend to um, be much more focused on what they eat than, say, the older generations. You'd suggested, I think it might have been on a podcast you did with George, where it might be that there are others who are interested in our food supply. And I think that that's fascinating. And I was wondering if you could talk about why you think that is. Yeah, so so um, the whole cattle mutilation thing um, came out. Um, I joined an organization in 1996, which is, you know, way back in history, called the National Institute for Discovery Science. And the purpose of that organization and it was a privately funded organization by billionaire Robert Bigelow, who tends to put a lot of money into areas that are, you know, controversial uh, and anomalies. So one of the anomalies that the National Institute for Discovery Science was tasked with investigating was this so-called cattle mutilation phenomenon that really erupted in the late 1960s throughout the western part of the United States. Pretty well, every state was hit. And um, even in the 1970s, 1980s, um, there was uh, hundreds, if not thousands of cattle that were found by farmers and ranchers and veterinarians. They were perfectly healthy the day before, and they would be found dead with these weird incisions that uh, that happened where the lips um, were, were, were cut out. Sometimes the genitals were cut out. Sometimes there were holes that were made in the, in the abdomen, abdomen of the, the cattle. Sometimes uh, there were holes um, in, the, in the head. But it, it all looked like somebody had killed these animals. And it was definitely not the work of predators or coyotes or whatever. So this was a mystery. And actually, in late 19, I think, 1979, 1980, um, the FBI actually got involved with investigating these things, these uh, phenomena, because the entire Western part of the U United States was suffering an epidemic of the of these cattle mutilations. And essentially, nobody has been ever caught or charged with a crime in terms of killing thousands of these cattle. So... National Institute for Discovery Science was formed. Uh, we had a full-time veterinarian on staff. My background is uh, biological sciences. 
So we formed a sort of a task force within uh, NIDS, which is the acronym for National Institute for Discovery Science. And we connect, connected with a lot of veterinarians in the west, western part of the United States and also law enforcement, sheriff's departments throughout the, the Montana and Washington, Nevada, uh, Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado. So we, we established a network so that we could get a call when, uh, when these animals went down. And so we were able to um, get our act together so that we would have veterinarian, a, a qualified veterinarian on the spot um, within 24 hours of the, of the animal dying. Um, you know, the rancher would, would, would find the, uh, the animal and would immediately know who to call because we, we sent a lot of these um, telephone numbers out. We had a toll-free telephone number. So we would get calls. We would dispatch a team to these cattle mutilations. And we looked at several, probably 50, 60 cattle mutilations in different states over a period of maybe four or five years. So, so it was a really successful sort of endeavor. Um, and the idea was that we would be on the spot. We could, the veterinarian would do what's called a necropsy, which is the equivalent of a, an a autopsy um, on these animals that would uh, take samples. If there did look like there were cuts around the, the hide, um, samples were taken from, the, and we were, would dispatch those samples to a variety of labs for histopathology and for biochemical analysis, blood analysis, and all of that. So we did have the resources because Robert Bigelow was funding all of this out of his own pocket. So uh, the way we approached this was a very sort of forensic, sort of scientific approach as opposed to kind of standing and over the animal and taking photographs and sort of speculating. So what, what ended up happening was that we accumulated a lot of data um, over four or five years. And it became obvious that there were really two sort of two separate patterns of cattle mutilations. Um, one was the most common, and that was that um, the, the lips or the eyes um, uh, or the, um, the re reproductive organs were usually removed in, in some kind of a, a really well-orchestrated surgical manner. It was obviously whoever was doing this had some sort of surgical skill. In fact, you know, um, some of the veterinarians that we talked to, because we also enlisted local veterinarians in this whole thing, some of these people that we talked to actually said, you know, this is really skillful. What, what, what's been done here is not sort of some hack arriving with a scalpel. It's somebody who knows what they're doing. So um, there was that that sort of series of mutilations, but there was a small number of mutilations, um, including one or two that we looked at on Skinwalker Ranch, which were obviously much weirder and much more um, difficult to explain. In other words, you know, it was beyond somebody with uh, with surgical expertise. You know, one example of that is is we came upon a, a, a mutilated animal in. Northern California, and the the intact eye of the animal had been removed, and it had been placed on the grass. I mean, with the vitreous fluid in the eye, all the fluid in the eye was still intact, and it was looking at the animal. I mean, this was sort of a, it was sort of weird. It was not the sort of business like 
um, you know, the standard pattern was pretty business-like. It looked like a sampling exercise. So um, there was this small number that we sort of labeled as quote-unquote paranormal linked cattle mutilations, but the majority of them looked like a business-like sampling um, sampling exercise that was going on. Now, layered on top of that, um, over the, the course of um, the several years that we looked into it, um, there were medical devices sometimes found um, either beneath these animals or on these animals. I'm, I'm talking about hypodermic syringes. Um, some of the chemical analysis that we conducted on these animals seemed to show that there were levels of um, sedatives in the animals. So it began to look like some kind of a, a sampling exercise. And it was around this time, time that the the whole um, prion uh, protein um, was was sort of getting gaining prominence as a as a sort of a, a really lethal disease. Um, so we put out the hypothesis that this may have been a food supply sampling exercise by a small expert team that may have been contracted by, you know, might have been contracted by a pharmaceutical company, might have been contracted by um, one of the arms of the United States government. We didn't know, but it would not be um, a very, very sort of sophisticated exercise to have a helicopter, a couple of trained veterinarian surgeons, a couple of technicians to land at night um, and start sampling animals in the wild. Now, why, why would this be necessary? The reason it's necessary is that if you try to do the same thing in a sort of a slaughterhouse, if you, if you go to a slaughterhouse and you try to um, get samples of animals, people start talking and you, you do not have the same sort of uh, freedom of movement or latitude than if you're sampling the food supply in the field, in the wild. And if you're tracking movement of an infectious uh, organism or an infectious prion, across a food supply, you want to do it in multiple states, um, multiple herds, multiple locations. And that's the kind of pattern that we began to see. So it's, it's the result of all, of all of the above that we started formulating this hypothesis that, you know, there was the, the majority of these sample, um, you know, samples were being taken from cattle, probably legally, um, but they were. The, it was a sampling of the food supply as opposed to, you know, UFOs coming down and mutilating cattle, this kind of thing. But, you know, the beauty of this whole thing was that there was enough legend and enough lore out in the sort of the newspapers and all of that all talked about mutilations sort of being associated with aliens. Um, so that means that no self-respecting veterinarian would uh, waste a lot of time doing this. No, no serious scientific study would ever happen. And law enforcement would usually not touch it. So, um, you know, we, we also hypothesized that this organization, whoever it was, that was sampling the food supply, was doing it on the undercover of the, the so-called UFO alien thing. So they knew they would never get caught because nobody would essentially bother to get into such a, a controversial investigation. And so, you know, this thing went on for, for decades. There are very, very occasional cases now, but 
there were um you know countries in south america had a lot of um a lot of of this cattle mutilation phenomenon occurring in the same way you know i mean if i had to speculate i would say the same group that was doing it in the united states also probably got a contract to go down to argentina because argentina were obviously very concerned about the quality of their beef especially with the export markets they were they were exporting a lot to united states and europe so they were very concerned about making sure that the the uh, food supply in argentina was not contaminated is there have you ever uh, attempted to figure out like based on the parts that are that have been removed what sort of information they were looking for like with the tongue or whatever well again one of the reasons that we started looking at the um you know at the prion as a possibility is that you know uh there were there were primarily the prions once they uh, uh infect they do replicate very rapidly in the tongue and in the um the lymph nodes around the the, the neck of the of the animal um so and and in the brain and the um spinal cord tends to tends to also get a lot of activity the eye there's a lot of um prion activity in the eye of an infected animal so a lot of the organs that were being removed and the tongue is a very good example because of the high levels of replication of prions in the tongue that uh we kind of put two and two together and we formulated this now i emphasize this is not a fact this was a testable hypothesis so um <clears throat> You know, NIDS was disbanded in 2004. After that, I'm not aware of any organization that threw the kind of resources um, at this problem that uh, Robert Bigelow and National Institute for Discovery Science and our teams that were on the ground, I'm not aware of anything that has been done since 2004 on this problem. I think things have actually regressed back to the original situation where you get people who are sort of, they quote unquote, investigate cattle mutilations by going there, taking photographs and then posting them online. Um, but, you know, in terms of actual information, analytical information, forensic analysis, I'm not aware of anything that's been done since 2004. Hmm. Well, later on, I want to ask you about um, inve- investigations and what people should be doing. But um I, I have a couple more questions about the the cow mutilations. You had said so, you had said something earlier about how there there was sort of almost a parallel between the discovery of the prions and when this started. Um, and I was I was wondering if there's also a correlation. I, I don't know how far back Alzheimer's research goes into, but was there an increase in Alzheimer's at around the time that this started as well? Well, you know the timing. Um... Alzheimer's obviously is uh, is it's known that there were some cases of dementia documented all the way back in the early 1900s. In fact, uh, the guy all was uh, Alzheimer was operating back in those days, and and the disease you know got his name. But it's not really until the 1970s um, that the numbers of Alzheimer cases started to really escalate. I mean, the the you you can actually track it because the CDC um, uh, has has a lot of data now 
in terms of the escalation of Alzheimer's that really started, um, the curve started going up and it got steeper and steeper um, by the late 1970s, 1980s, 1990s. So it has continued going very, very sharply up. But pre-1970, um, Alzheimer's disease was not that common. I mean, it was um, it was common. Now, you know, if you talk to somebody at the CDC, they'll say, okay, well, we did change the, de- the definition of what constitutes Alzheimer's around that time. And, you know, that possibly is one of the reasons. But it goes way, way beyond that because we're talking, you know, hundreds and hundreds of percent increases and escalating over time. Um, also, the aging of the population, you'll, you'll hear these explanations that the aging of the population, uh, people are living older, uh, longer now. Um, but that's still, even if you factor all of those factors in, you still get dramatic increases of, um, of this phenomenon uh, Alzheimer's phenomenon starting in the 1970s. Now, sh- should mention that, you know, one of the things that I tracked in, in Brain Trust was that there was really sort of some remarkable experiments being done by the National Institutes of Health in the 1950s. And um, there was a guy called Carlton Gajuszek who actually won the Nobel Prize for his discoveries. But what he what he figured out was that um, there was a tribe in Papua New Guinea called the Foray. They were cannibals, and one of the way they one of the ways they sort of uh, marked the rituals that they marked the the death of one of their tribes people was by eating them. And um, Carlton Gajuszek had discovered that there was uh, this tribe had come down with a bizarre brain disease that they call Kuru. And so he actually was kind of like a cowboy out there. I mean, nobody was regulating or overseeing him, but he was an NIH scientist. So he started uh, carving up these people and and essentially getting their brains of um, of, of these cannibals who were dying from this mysterious disease, shipping the brains back to the National Institutes of Health And actually, the brains were shipped to Fort Detrick in Maryland, which is the still the center of biological warfare um, investigations in the United States. And so these brains were accumulating in Fort Detrick. So throughout that, this all happened in the late 1950s. So throughout the 1960s, they were trying to figure out what this infectious entity um, that was killing these tribes people, because it was obvious something infectious they were eating. Uh, and the people, the cannibals who ate the dead people would all in turn come down with this mysterious brain degenerative disease um, that we now know, uh, know as mad cow disease. But bottom line is they, um, the scientists at the NIH, they, um, they got this facility in Patuxent, Maryland, and began injecting a whole bunch of different animals, chimpan- chimpanzees, deer, cattle, mice, rats, you name it to see if this uh, disease was transmissible. So bottom line is that over time, um, to, to put it mildly, all of, these, all of the security, all of the sort of biosafety level, none of that existed back in the early 60s. So a lot of these animals escaped. And so one of the hypotheses is by the sort of late 1960s, early 1970s, these um, prions had 
transmitted through the, the food chain, especially to deer, because chronic wasting disease in deer is a highly infectious form of this aberrant protein that goes right, right through the herds. So bottom line is that it transmitted through the country. And so the escalation of all of this stuff, including cattle mutilations beginning in the late 1960s, the rise of, uh, of dementia that happened in, in North America in the 1970s, all of these kind of co-located in time around the same time. So again, we, were, we went through the exercise of joining the dots. One of the parts I found interesting in Brain Trust is this sort of recurring, it seemed like a scene that recurred again and again and again, where some authority with the state would go and investigate the cow mutilation, be like, it's a predator, see ya. And I, have, do you think that, and this could just be your opinion based on, on you know, all, all the time you spent down up there doing that. Um, do you think they knew better? This is a pretty complex, you know, it's, it's a pretty complex research program. And um, I, I think some, some people may have known better. I think the people who contracted, who may have contracted this small outfit to, to do some uh, food, food source sampling throughout the Western part of the United States may have known better. But the vast majority of the people who were working at the state level um, you know, sort of who were uh, aligned with the CDC or the USDA. Um, I, I really don't think that those people were privy to um, what was going on. I, I, I think it was, it was kind of like they didn't have the full picture and um, there was too many separate data points um, in, in different areas. I, I don't think, you know, necessarily people had the, had the full picture. And the other thing is, you know, I've worked with a lot of state governments, uh, but but particularly federal government in the last 25 years, including Department of Defense um, and uh, NASA and, and other organizations and multiple departments in the Department of Defense. And so what some people may ascribe to, um, you know, some kind of a conspiracy I think usually can be explained by people making mistakes or some sort of incompetence going on. I, I, I would tend to put that out as the first uh, explanation as opposed to some kind of organized cabal doing some, something nefarious. Because again and again, I've seen these sort of mistakes being made. You know, people, people get transferred out of departments and all of their expertise goes with them. And this new person has no idea what to do and this whole thing. That happens with incredible regularity in the federal government. I would agree with that. When I was in my early 20s, before I moved to New York, I used to be a conspiracy theorist. And then I came here and I started meeting people and I changed my mind. <laughs> when you, once you start having dinner with yeah. congressmen, you realize nobody can keep a secret. Exactly. And yeah. So the, biz the business, there's the business as usual mutilations, and then there's the other ones. Can you talk about the other ones? The other ones, um, I, I'll give you an example of the other ones. We were, we, there was a, a ranch in northeastern Utah, which has since become known as Skinwalker Ranch. 
um, that National Institute for Discovery Science was kind of it had it owned the property, um, and it was like a living laboratory because one of the reasons the per the, the property was purchased was that this property had a history of cattle mutilations going back into the 60s and 50s. Um, so the property was purchased and there was a herd of cattle on the property. Um, and so we, we had surveillance on the property. We had sensors on the property to detect anything weird. But um, I was sitting in Las Vegas in 1990, it was 1997 when we got a call from the ranch manager of Skinwalker Ranch saying that uh, one of their their calves had gone down and they had just found it. And the weird thing it was, um, this was calving season. It was March of 1997. Um, all these newborn calves were, you know, getting getting born around the, the property. And um, the rancher and his wife, the ranch manager and his wife had gone through the process of um, putting ear tags, these bright yellow plastic ear tags on the cattle, <clears throat> on the calves after they'd been born. So this was happening, but um, sort of 10 o'clock in the morning, they had just tagged this um, this uh, newborn calf. was It weighed about 84 pounds, and um, they had uh, walked about 100 yards down to the next one where they were proceeding to tagged the next one when the dog next to them started freaking out and um you know and it was obviously focused on where they had just come you know from before so they they went back to 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 figure out what was going on and they found this calf that they had tagged like 45 minutes earlier and this was like 10 o'clock in the morning bright sunny morning in march and they found the calf um, completely spread eagled on the ground. Um, all of its internal organs were gone. Um, it, it was open uh, as if it had been sort of spread eagled and carefully spread on the ground. And the really spooky part of this thing was that there was not a drop of blood on the animal, in the animal. So it's not like a coyote came out from the, the tree line and attacked the calf. This calf had been um, completely stripped of all internal organs. And uh, so I got a call when I was in, uh, in, in Las Vegas and we had our veterinarian on staff. And we had a couple of people. So luckily Robert Bigelow had a private jet. So we jumped on the private jet. We were standing over the animal about uh, two and a half, three hours after the call. And I mean, this was one of the weirdest things I've ever seen. I mean, the, this calf, was lying on its back in the pasture, all four legs sort of spread eagled. Um, and the, you know, the flesh was pink. The ribs were just jutting up. Um, all of the hide had been cut away. And like uh, the, the rancher had talked to us, there was not a, a, not a drop of blood on the animal. So we actually did this experiment to, to see if maybe a whole bunch of blood had sort of seeped from the animal onto the ground and, you know, disappear that way. So we actually did that experiment, went to the local um, slaughterhouse, got a couple of liters of blood and poured it on the grass in different locations and photographed it over time. Fact is, if any of that blood had been spilled from the calf, it would have stained the grass, you know, badly. But, you know, this animal in broad daylight with the two people 
um, you know, no more than sort of 100 yards, maybe 150 yards away. Um, they never heard anything. They never saw anything. The only thing that alerted them was their dog went crazy uh, at this particular time and alerted them that something was happening over there. But this happened essentially in broad daylight under their noses. So that's an example of the kind of spooky um, sort of quote unquote paranormal associated because we we actually got a tracker, a professional tracker to, to start looking um, around the animal. And he kind of quartered the area for several days looking for tracks, looking for any tracks of any perpetrators that could have done this. You know, we had all of these um, gaming exercises. We war game the whole thing of, you know, a, a group of special forces people that, you know, had broken cover from the fence line and, 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 and done it. But fact is there were no tracks there was no blood at all. There was no sign of the organs. And this animal, you know, the, the yellow, bright yellow uh, ear tag from the ear of the animal had been really cleanly sliced off by what looked like a scalpel, um, very, very cleanly. So this was not a coyote attack. It was not somebody or something had done this with using sharp instruments. So we took, took a necropsy of the animal. We sampled the animal and the from two uh, independent labs we got forensically, we got that sharp instruments had definitively been used on this animal. Um, and it was not sort of a predator attack, was not a coyote attack. So that was an example of the kind of the spooky, um, and this was not characteristic of the, of the animals that we investigated. Your involvement with the ranch pretty much started with the mutilations. It started with, um, it was a combination of the cattle mutilations plus a lot of um, unusual activity, including these quote-unquote nuts and, nuts and bolts uh, UFOs that used to uh, reportedly fly over the property. So that was one of the reasons that the, the ranch was purchased. It's a 500-acre ranch um, in northeastern Utah, you know, about 50, 40, 50 miles from the Colorado border. And it's along the uh, the Wasatch Front, um, pretty out of the way place. Um, but that was the reason it was purchased because of these. Um, we we were tasked with investigating all of these anomalies, u- utilizing the scientific method. I mean, that's that's the the bottom line. We had PhD level scientists on staff. We actually had a science advisory board that were pretty. Um, they held our feet to the fire and they made sure that nothing that we did was deviated from the scientific method. And these people were sort of world-class scientists from national laboratories, from universities. We actually had two scientists or two astronauts who had walked on the moon on the, on the board of National Institute for Discovery Science. That's like Harrison Schmidt and uh, Edgar Mitchell. So two out of the 12 people in history that have walked on the moon, uh, they were part of our National Institute for Discovery Science Science Advisory Board. So it was a pretty prestigious board and they were not into um, sloppiness or you know methodology that, that was outside the scientific method. So, I mean, I think it was a good thing because it really kept us um, really focused on trying to apply the scientific method to, to these anomalies. But, you know, one of the problems was we were constantly um, one foot behind the, 
you know, whatever was doing this, we were always behind the, the curve. And that was the first part of my conversation with Colin Kelleher. Please tune in next week for the second part in which we discussed almost exclusively his work at Skinwalker Ranch. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to my podcast. If you have a moment, please consider subscribing to the show wherever you listen. And if the app allows for it, please leave a rating and review. That way, the algorithm moves us up in recommendations. It's a great way for new listeners to find our show. Thanks, and I'll see you on the next episode.